Hello, and welcome to the June 14, 2022 episode of The Musical Universe of Professor Hurst. This is Craig W. Hurst, Emeritus Professor of Music, podcasting from my music bunker, along with my faithful canine companion, Carmel the Wonder Dog, to share with you my latest musical interests and discoveries. I claim no special inside information about the latest or greatest music, nor do I know everything there is to know about music. What I am is a lover of music. I enjoy several genres of music, and I share with you what has currently caught my interest. Old, new, outdated, and everything in between. Even old music is brand new if you have never heard it before. The universe of music is a vast one to enjoy. From my discussions, you might find something new to you and of interest to expand your own musical universe. I currently receive no compensation or motivation of any kind from any recording label, recording artist, or the estate of any performer or composer dead and gone to discuss their music and or recordings. Now with that out of the way, welcome to my musical universe. My guest today is Sue Foley, a Canadian blues guitarist and singer who records on the Watertown, Ontario-based True North record label. Foley has been playing guitar since she was 13 years old. Like so many other musicians, it was the music of the early Rolling Stones that inducted her into the world of the blues. As she started working with other bands, she made her way to the Mark Hummel Group and began touring Canada and Northern America. When Austin Blues nightclub and label owner Clifford Antone saw her at the annual Blues Music Awards in Memphis, he knew he'd met an all-timer. Before long, Foley was living in Austin and in 1992 recorded her debut album, Young Girl Blues. They say some things are meant to be, and surely it was this connection with Antone and Austin that set the stage for much of this blues woman's life. At the heart of it all has always been the guitar, though. It's the sound of Sue Foley's soul that comes out of the six strings, and it's no accident that her newest album, Pinky's Blues, is named after her pink Paisley Fender Telecaster electric guitar that has been such a major part of Foley's life for all these years. Everything about the musician's new album seems to point its wondrous aim at destiny. Sue Foley and producer Mike Flanagan decided to make the album in the middle of the COVID lockdown in 2020. Mike, drummer Chris Layton, and I had just finished making Mike's album, West Texas Blues, and we needed another challenge to keep us busy, Foley says. 
And because we'd been hanging out together, we were comfortable in each other's presence, and this would be a very low-key closed session. I brought in John Penner to play bass. He was my first bass player and had been on all my early Antones records. So just the four of us, along with engineer Chris Bell, went into the studio and recorded the entire album in three days. What you're hearing is live, off the floor, in the moment the music was played totally spontaneously and mainly improvised. Sue Foley's life has been an exploration of the blues and so much more. Leaving Canada as a young player, she knew she had to go where the music thrived. All her years in Austin, and including those when she left to learn new approaches to life, have all come together on Pinky's Blues. The fact that I've ended up back in Austin just seems right, Foley says. My home is Canada, and I definitely identify as a Canadian. But I had a yearning for this music, and I can't even put my finger on why or how. It got in my soul when I was a teenager. I was open, and I got imprinted by the sound and the force of blues music. It for sure is, an, is all really happening all over Pinky's Blues. Sue Foley's well-loved guitar is stepping up and stepping out, playing the music of the spheres and sharing a love for something so deep and so pure, there are no words to truly describe it. Though Foley tries. I've been on the road for over 30 years. You could call that paying my dues and all of this just makes my life richer and more colorful. You never really get there. You're just always going. But it's a great trip, and I never get tired of playing a slow blues. That's the ultimate. Today, in 2021, Sue Foley is surely one of the ultimate, with Pinky right by her side. It is my pleasure to welcome to my musical universe, Sue Foley. Hello, Sue. Hello. It's really great to uh, talk with you. Um, well, thank you. And to have you on my show, and uh, been looking forward to uh, to getting to know you better. I've been listening to a good deal of your music and uh, enjoying that a, a great deal. But uh, Sue, you've been doing a, a good deal of touring uh, lately, and by the time this podcast goes public, you will have been to Europe and back home. Yes, uh, we will have been to Europe back and through the U.S., the northern, northeastern U.S. for the second time in three months, uh, and then back home. So, yes. Yeah. So uh, how are audiences responding to live music on the road now that COVID seems to be easing up? Oh, everybody's it's business as usual, I'm happy okay. to say. Yeah. So it's, people uh, are really eating it up then. Oh, yeah, absolutely. And happy to be out and um you know based on anyone any personal comfort level or whatever i can't really comment on that but i will say that the fans are coming out and they seem really happy to be oh well that's good that's there. good well i think a lot of people i've talked to that have gotten back to you know playing live have seemed to get the feeling that their audiences have missed live music and they really seem to be craving it. And uh, 
So I get that's a good thing for us. Uh, but I'm curious, have you toured uh, Europe previously to this upcoming tour? Oh, a lot. I've been going back and forth to Europe since, God, the early 90s. I mean, okay. Yeah, I mean, I started out pretty young and I've been touring for well over 30 years. Uh -huh. um, yeah. So, yep, been to Europe many, many times all over it. Oh, wonderful. Well, yeah. how, would, uh, how would you compare audiences in Europe, uh, say, to those here in North America? Well, I think in Europe, they realize how far you have to come to get there. Um, and they know it's a special thing. So a lot of people like in Europe, for instance, if there's if there's only one play in, say, Belgium or, you know, anybody that lives in Belgium will come out that really wants to see it because they know you're not going to be there all the time and they can't just get you. So they really do have a, a strong appreciation and, and a real sweet um, appreciation for you making the trip over. They treat they treat artists really well over there. They do consider musicians artists. Um, so it's great. It's fantastic. And I really, I'm really jazzed to be back. Mm -hmm. Yeah, well, you have a, you really have it. What looks like a really fun itinerary on your uh, website for your European tour. So I wish you the best and hope you have a good time. Well, um, thank you. Well, you know, talking about uh, the blues as, as a music, uh, just for the sake of a, a, a starting point of discussion, is uh, the blues really an international style or is it a Southern United States style that is imitated internationally? Now, I'm thinking, of course, you're from Canada. Yes. And so you, you know, you, you didn't really come by the blues I mean, the blues didn't originate in Canada, although nope. I know Canadians do get the blues. Oh, yeah. <laughs> uh, and and certainly I'm also thinking about all the various pockets of different blues styles within North America. I mean, I've talked to blues artists in, in New England and, of course, over on the uh, uh, more on the Atlantic coast and, and talking about, uh, you know, these different styles in addition to you know, what we typically think of is uh, the Mississippi Delta blues or Chicago electric blues and so on. And I also am thinking about the various uh, English blues musicians right. and blues influenced English rock bands like the like the Rolling Stones or or the Animals or uh, certainly John Mile and the Blues Breakers. Uh, and so I, when I think about the blues, I mean, are, is this really, a, a, you know, a Southern United States style that is just imitated or is there enough uniqueness or enough that is different to say that we now have an international style, but it's just a little bit different in different places. I mean, I you've, tra I you've, you've traveled a lot. You've been all over the United States. So that's why I want to. Your... Yeah, I mean, the blues has very regional sounds, even within the United States. I mean, California to Texas to New Orleans to Chicago to New York um, to the Piedmont. Uh, they're all really distinct stylistically. Mm -hmm. um, all those sounds, and they have been almost from the inception. Okay. Um, 
I think other countries are developing their own sounds too. I mean, I, I think Canada is developing its own personality with blues. I mean, you have to understand blues has been coming up to Canada almost since recorded music. I mean, uh -huh. there's been artists going to Canada and playing blues music from the very start, crossing sure. that border. And when I was coming up uh, as a teenager, there was a lot of Chicago blues bands coming up to Canada because they, uh -huh. they saw a good opportunity to make money up there. And there was a lot of fans. And I saw everybody in Canada when I was in my teens, like from, you know, from Galbert Collins to James Cotton to Coco Taylor to everybody and people mm -hmm. coming up from Texas. So, I mean, we've been exposed to blues music almost as long as they have in America. Okay. Um, it's just not what you think of as blues because it, you know, obviously the music didn't originate there. Um, but people have been enjoying it and learning it for that whole time. So, sure. um, and I think, and I think Canada is developing its own personality. It's got a really strong blues scene and, um, the Toronto Blues Society in particular, they do big events and uh, they've been supporting blues artists for decades and decades. So, mm -hmm. yeah. Well, I have had a couple of other Canadian blues artists on my show. I, I had the privilege of uh, interviewing Harp Dog Brown, uh -huh. who is uh, from, I think, as I recall, he's from Vancouver. Mm -hmm. And he had a lot of interesting things to talk about in terms of, of the blues scene in Vancouver and Canada. And then also a, a Sunday Wild, a, a blues singer and pianist from Thunder Bay, Ontario. And oh, nice. uh, same, you know, she had very similar kinds of comments as yours that, um, you know, it's, it's, uh, it's something that has been there and absorbed and and then you know people hear things they imitate they innovate and 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 yet it kind of stays within that that great sound that we associate with uh, with the blues uh and of course the english i haven't i haven't interviewed any english uh blues musicians as of yet but i i know i've seen enough documentaries where they talk about how the english are extreme sponges of you know sounds and ideas and uh, excellent students of american music and kind of like uh you know the the echo that comes back is 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 really you know quite strong because they do have good ears so it's and uh, they and they made a distinct blues sound of their own in England, it's very distinct. Well, so, I, yeah, yeah, I think I, it's funny. I think one time, one of the documentaries I remember I used to use when I taught the uh, university, there was a talking head and referred to the Thames cotton fields and those oh, interests, those, uh, those, those English in London that were very interested in the, in the blues and Alex Corner's Barrel House Club and those sorts of things that gave birth to groups like like the Stones. So, uh -huh. yeah, okay. Well, let's uh, let's kind of get now more specifically to you. I mean, you've you've been you've had a a, a good association with uh, the music scene in Texas. Uh, but who have been your models for musical style, both singing and playing? Well, I, I was really influenced by Texas blues, which is why I was so drawn to Austin, Texas. Mm -hmm. and, and I ended up here. Um, 
and particularly the sound that was coming out of Austin in say the mid 1980s and yeah. with, with Stevie Ray Vaughan and then the fabulous Thunderbirds and then mm -hmm. all, all the other local artists that sort of developed their own sound here in Austin. So I'm really influenced by that. And since I moved here shortly after that, when I was pretty young, I really did absorb that style of playing. And that's what I think I do probably the best, you know, which sounds weird because I am a Canadian, but I feel like I play a Texas style Mm -hmm. especially on especially on guitar but so that's influenced by anybody you know definitely people like jimmy vaughn um who uh, you know who was influenced by so and so you know like t-bone walker and white and hopkins and so it's this sort of thing this thing this stylistic thing that did come out of texas and the way they play guitar so i i think the texas guitar players from Clarence Gatemouth Brown to Freddie King to Frankie Lee Sims to Jimmy Vaughn to, um, mm -hmm. you know, a lot of the more lesser known artists like Derek O'Brien or Denny Freeman and Anson Funderburg to, mm -hmm. you know, uh, guys like that is sort of where my guitar style, you know, my electric guitar style sort of sits. Vocally, I, I love people like Angela Straley. She's another Texas artist, Luann Barton. But I also love Memphis Minnie, who's originally from Mississippi. So mm -hmm. it, it runs the gamut. You know, I, I spent a lot of time studying different styles. I love Bessie Smith vocally, really. I, she might be my favorite vocalist. Um, yeah. so, so that's kind of where I'm at. All over the place, really. Sure, sure. Well, I mean, you know, anymore, I guess it's probably true. Just, you know, when you talk about uh, I hate to use the word influences, although I guess that's that's what they are. But we all have ears. We we listen to lots of different music, and we we absorb what we hear, and then it sort of becomes part of our own musical DNA. But mm -hmm. uh, when you talk about that mid '80s, that's right in my wheelhouse because I was living in Texas uh, at that time. Oh, and, and that's I, interesting. Uh, oh, yeah, yeah. I lived in Texas for 15 years. I was in, oh. uh, in uh, I lived in the Dallas-Fort Worth Metroplex, oh, okay. uh, Denton, and then Fort Worth. And, uh, and I fondly recall those bands that you mentioned and, and, and listening to them a lot on um, uh, the NPR station out of Dallas that used to... Uh, play a lot of Texas artists and uh, and then also would would uh, broadcast live from the Kerrville festival and right so, so you know I heard a lot of that and of course Austin City Limits on TV mm -hmm. you know yeah so I, and I love that I love that that stuff and of course was exposed to it when I when I was there but uh yeah. So I, and that's why I like your music. I mean, I, like I said, I, when I get ready for an interview, I, I spend a good deal of time listening, not only to your newest uh, album, Pinky's Blues, but also to your back catalog. Uh, so I can kind of get a feel for, you know, not only where you are, but where you've been. So. Oh, nice. Uh, but anyway, yeah. since I brought up Pinky's Blues, talk to my audience about the other musicians in your touring band and the musicians that you recorded with on Pinky's Blues? Well, in my touring band, you know, we're, we're basically a trio. Uh -huh. It's me on guitar and vocals. And then we have a, a guy named John Panner on bass who started out with me. 
And John's also the bass player on the album, Pinky's Blues. Okay. John and I started out together in Canada and uh, I don't know, we worked together for about a decade and then kind of each went our, our own ways for almost 20 years, believe it or not. And uh, now he's back in my band and he lives in Madison, Wisconsin. So he's not oh, far really? from you. Yeah. Oh, he well, loves how about it there. that? Oh yeah, yeah Madison's a great Madison. town. Yeah. Yeah. So he's in the band and then a guy named Corey Keller on drums. He's uh, a, another guy we've known for a long, long time. He came down here from North Dakota in the, in the probably the late nineties, mid late nineties. And he was a, just a kid. And um, he came up through the same school of the blues as we did the Antones nightclub and record company. And uh, so we're mm -hmm. all pretty, pretty, pretty well related musically. And then on mm -hmm. the album, on drums, uh, it's Chris Whipper Layton, who was the original drummer for Stevie Ray Vaughan and Double Trouble. Oh, okay. And then we have a little bit of Hammond B3 organ on the album too, and that's Mike Flanagan, and he is from Texas. He's from Denton. Uh huh. And, yes. And he's a great B3 organ player and plays with Jimmy Vaughn and Billy Gibbons a lot, and uh, he's also producer of the album. It was a very stripped down unit. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Well, it's, you know, I really like that almost spare sound anyway. I think that's, uh, you know, I, well, I mean, truth be known when it comes to, to blues, I like everything from, you know, the full horns and harp players and everything to the more stripped down sound to, uh, you know, it's just something leaner and cleaner about it that, uh, that I think as it comes across, but yeah. Um, uh, I know uh, you mentioned, I think it was in your biographical materials that uh, you finished doing an album with Mike just uh -huh. before he decided to do Pinky's Blues. And so I was just doing a little read, you know, reading up about him and was uh, kind of pleased to see he was from Denton. Yeah. And because uh, I, I uh, you know, I was there for a while. It's where I went to graduate school and, and, uh, Denton had a, always had an interesting music festival every spring that they uh, would put on and a lot of really good, uh, a lot of good music down there. Oh yeah. 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 Well, I think Texas in general, I mean, Austin is uh, you've got more, I think you have more light. There's more live clubs per capita in Austin than any other city its size. So lots of, lots of great music going on. Um, yes. I'm, I'm particularly interested in having you talk about a couple of songs on the new album, uh, oh. because uh, the, or at least to share with my audience, because I already kind of know the story, having read your bio material. But but uh, there's an interesting story between Dallas Man and Say It's Not So. Would you share with my audience uh, kind of the stories behind those two songs? Sure. Well, Say It's Not So is a slow blues number that is written by um, a lady I just mentioned, Angela Straley, one of the great blues singers from, she's originally from Lubbock, but she really helped create the Austin, Texas scene. She was really instrumental in the blues and mm -hmm. rebuilding the blues scene in the, you know, in the 70s and 80s with Antone's Nightclub. So she was she was really instrumental with that. She also kind of discovered me in Canada and, and brought me to the attention of Clifford Antone, who owned the famous nightclub where everybody played mm -hmm. the record. And she helped start the record label for Clifford. So 
so Angela was really an important figure for me, but also one of the most soulful blues singers and a, and a wonderful writer. So this song that I covered of hers, I just fell in love with. I thought it was just so soulful. And the words are just, you know, it's just, it's a great blues song. And uh, so we covered her song. Dallas Man is one that I wrote, and that is a song I wrote about that Dallas Fort Worth area and all the guitar players, the great guitar players that came through there from mm -hmm. Blind Lemon Jefferson to Little Son Jackson to Freddie King to T Bone Walker to you can just go on and on the Vaughn brothers, Anson Funderburg, Denny Freeman, Derek O'Brien. I mean, the Doyle Bram Hall. It's, mm -hmm. it's, it's just a wealth of great guitar players that came out of there. So I kind of wrote that song for. For all yeah. those influences oh very cool very cool yeah that's uh hearing you talk that's it's music to my ears i re, I, yeah, I fondly I so. recall fondly recall um uh, a lot of the artists uh that you you mentioned and and uh the clubs down in deep Ellum and, and yes uh, lots of great places yes well aside from recording uh on Mike's album and recording Pinky's Blues. What did you do during the COVID shutdown of live music to keep yourself occupied and sane? I did a lot. I mean, we recorded two albums for a, a, a few weeks. We did a live stream called Texas Blues Party, which was the impetus for us getting the material for our albums because Mike recorded his album, West Texas Blues, and then I recorded Pinky's Blues on the heels of that. And really what we had been doing with Texas Blues Party is we were just paying tribute to all the great Texas blues artists and studying them again and playing their songs and sharing them their history with people and doing call-ins with friends. So that was really a blast. Mm -hmm. um, I just did that for a few weeks. I started a Patreon where I started doing instructional guitar stuff, which was really rewarding as well. And mm -hmm. um, I started a shop my website that I'd never all these little things that I didn't have time for I'm also you know speaking of academia I'm also pursuing my PhD so I've been in school I was able to work uh, remotely and uh, I'm a TA as well and I'm doing my oh PhD. good for you yeah. yeah I'm doing my PhD in musicology up in Toronto so I was able to still ah. keep that keep that those balls in the air and uh, work on my coursework and I was, and I'm also writing a book about women guitar players. So, I mean, there's a lot of stuff I, I had to do anyway that I, thankfully I had time to kind of get some more, uh, leverage with all those projects. So. Sure. Sure. Well, yeah. I, you know, I think creative people, and I, I think I will include myself in that, in that genre, you know, we can't stand to be idle. So, I mean, it's, it's like we, we find, we've got to find ways to keep creating, contributing to it. I mean, that's one of the reasons I started this podcast was, right. uh, you know, I had, I had this equipment here at home that I used when I used to teach online and, uh, you know, a nice uh, audio technique, a microphone and, and all this, all that. And, and uh, I thought, well, what the heck I'll do a podcast. And I have found that doing this podcast has been an absolute, uh, godsend in a lot of ways just simply because i'm able to talk with people all over the country and uh about music and it's uh it's really kind of reassuring to know 
that other people out there love music as much as I do. So that's, uh, that's pretty cool. And you're working on a PhD in musicology. Oh, very good. Wow. And so what is, what's your area of expertise going to be? Women and guitar. Oh, women and guitar. I see. Yeah. I've been, I've been studying the whole culture of women and guitar for decades. I mean, just Mm -hmm. based on women that influenced me and, uh-huh. I did a I did a series of interviews, which is the stuff I'm putting together for my own book. Uh, you know, from 2001 till about 2014, I did over 100 interviews with kinds of fantastic guitar players, and uh, wow. so I've been comp- I've been working on getting that all. Are you, know. you uh, I'm just curious. Are you transcending styles and genres? Or yes, are you, are I am. You? Yes. Okay. Yeah. Because there so have been some fabulous some classical or yeah. classical blues, jazz, rock, pop, yeah, everything. Wow, that's wonderful, wonderful. Yeah, well, you got. I'm sure you probably got Sister Rosetta Tharp in there. Well, yeah, she's she'll she was, be in my dissertation. Yeah, I couldn't interview her, obviously. No, but obviously, but she's one of the greatest uh, <laughs> performers and you know historical figures in American music. Absolutely. She's she was amazing. She was amazing. Yeah, and I've seen a few videos of her on, you know, online. And of course, I have a box set of her recordings and just listening to her play. I mean, it's almost like she she writes the history of rock and roll before rock and roll happens. You know, it's just amazing listening to her. Well, that's very interesting that uh, you're pursuing that academia. So are you planning a, a career in academia when the when the when you get tired of touring and recording? Well, you know, I, I don't know what I'm going to do with it exactly. Yeah. Uh, finish my book and I'm not sure I'll pursue a full-time position somewhere, but I, I would be really interested in continue. I do like being an educator and I, uh-huh. I would be, you know, really happy just doing workshops and residencies and things like that. Yeah. Lectures. Yeah. Well, I highly recommend it. I was I was a university educator for a number of years, and there were days, most days, I loved it. Most days, not every day, but most days. And there was no greater. And you're, you know, since you're a TA, you probably have this experience. But there's no better feeling than when you you feel like you've got those students right in the palm of your hand, and uh, you're really getting through to them. It's that's uh, something I. Uh, wish the best for you that's that's awesome well, thank you yeah, yeah thanks yeah we'll see well, what happens with it but i have been it's just there right i i it's just yeah. kind of it's like the door opened and i walked through and i was like how did i end up here but hey whatever this is cool well it, so. it's interesting just kind of as an aside and not completely off topic but a little bit since you are in austin uh bill malone did his PhD dissertation at the University of Texas in Austin on country music. Mm-hmm. And I had the opportunity to meet Bill Malone. He eventually wrote a book, uh, which is considered to be the definitive history of country music. Bill now lives in Madison. How and, neat. Yeah. And he was, uh, he was presenting at our book festival about two, three years ago. And I was asked to introduce him. And uh, I kind of have a standing promised to myself I'm not going to introduce an author if I haven't read their book so I read his book and it's a very exhaustive uh study of, of country music and uh but he uh he got his 
he got his PhD at Texas and then he went on and spent his career teaching at Tulane. Then mm-hmm. he retired. Now he lives in Madison. But anyway, so a little bit of a tangent there, but that's no, uh, it's okay. Yeah, that's yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, yeah. I mean, you know, academia is an interesting, interesting field to get into. Well, are you uh, you writing currently writing any new music? Oh, yes. I'm always working on new music and, yeah. uh, and my next projects. You know, basically, you know, we work as like you say creatives or musicians i usually work at least three years out so uh-huh. you know i'll be working on projects that won't come to fruition for three years and usually when i'm about to talk about a project it's almost finished right uh, yeah <laughs> like, so, yeah so my book stuff and that is really coming to a, 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 a close for me and my dissertation i'm just on the last um the last few months of that i hope i'm hoping to be done by january um and then and then it's another album so we write yeah so you just yeah. keep right you keep going you always hope that that dissertation committee is going to leave you alone i maybe i shouldn't tell you this but for years i used to have the, a recurring nightmare uh-uh. that that i would be in my classroom teaching and there would be a knock at my door it'd be my major professor and he'd uh He'd, he'd be there and I'd open the door and he'd come in and says, uh, he'd say to me, uh, Craig, we want you to do one more revision. <laughs> right. And until then, we're revoking your degree. You know, and, I used oh. to, uh, and then I'd wake up, you know, it was kind of one of those Boy. things. But, yeah. but anyway, well, you know, so with you, then your muse is is pretty much on, uh, if not all the time, a lot of the time. But typically, what inspires you to write? Um, hmm. Inspires me to write is usually the having to do something. It's usually a, <laughs> an exercise that I have to do. Um, mm-hmm. You know, I, I, I'm not like the most inspired writer, but I write, I always say I write with um, perseverance and I just kind of persevere. And I enjoy, and I, I forget who said that quote, but it said, I, I hate written. I love having written. Um, I hate writing, but I love having written. That's it. Right. And I forget right. which writer said that, but it's a famous quote about writing. And I kind of feel like that. Um, yeah. I remember one of my committee members and, or no, wait a minute. It was a colleague of mine, an English professor who said that uh, the hardest thing about writing is getting started because yeah. uh, because thinking about having to sit down and write is sometimes more painful than the actual writing so yes. so then when it comes to writing music then are you a disciplined writer do you sit down and just write something anything on a regular basis or do you just wait for your muse to spew i absolutely write all the time if i'm uh-huh. going to write and i okay. don't wait for the, i don't wait for the muse cuz i think that's to me it doesn't work Okay. Waiting for the muse doesn't work for me. I got you. I I just and the muse will come when you Mm -hmm. least expect it. But in the in the process, you know, I always thought when I started writing, um, because I started out as a guitar player, I didn't start out writing songs. I wrote songs out of necessity. Sure. And then I realized, okay, I've got to do this. This is how the business works. If you don't write, you're not going to make half the money so you might as well try to write something and then I started writing and I started studying writing 
music and songs and, and uh, listening to great writers, absorbing stuff is really important, but it's more like just the daily practice. And I, and I realized, you know, when you're playing, when you're learning an instrument, so I likened it to what I had to do when I was learning guitar, and which was pick up this thing every day and put your fingers on it and try to do something. And if it's only 20 minutes a day, that's better than I always say to students, you know, 20 minutes a day is better than an hour every three days, even though it's the same amount of time. Right. Um, it's just that sort of mental game of I'm doing this every day. And this is, this sure. is me now. This is part of what I do. And I think that for me, that really works. Sure. Well, I mean, you keep, uh, you know, keep renewing or keep re-energizing all the neural connections. You yeah. Know, the, and you have to let yourself, you'll have to let yourself write badly. And that's a lot. A lot of people have real problems with that. They think, oh, I, as soon as I write, it's going to be it's got to be good. Well, no, it doesn't. It can be really yep. bad. And so can your playing for I think learning the guitar was a good. It was a good stepping stone to all these other things, because you realize what you have to do to learn something. And learning guitar is very boring and, and it takes forever. And you, know, you don't just pick it up and sound. Yeah. Good. Some people some people are better than others, more natural, but. In general, it, it just takes a lot of daily grind and, and uh, yeah. a lot of time in your room by yourself or application. And that's the same with writing. Sure. Well, I, you know, I think like I play trumpet and it's just a lot of repetition. Yeah, a lot of repetition. A lot of developing the muscle memory, the good habits, uh, that sort of thing. And you're absolutely right. It's just it's it's not. Sometimes, like I tell my students, sometimes it's about as interesting as watching paint dry. Yeah. But, but you you really have to do it. And, uh, uh, you know, but then things begin to, to get easier, hopefully, as you go along. And and uh, uh, so, yeah, I think that's, uh, you're, and you're absolutely right about the whole thing about, you know, if you want creativity, you got to turn the tap on first. And you got to turn that tap on every day so it doesn't get uh, doesn't get frozen up. Well, a lot of people are different, but I am curious about your creative process. When you write, what typically comes to mind first? Do you get a melodic idea, a rhythmic idea, or maybe it's a vamp or a set of chord changes? Or do you envision a particular mood or image and then try to express that musically? Um, you know, it, it, it could happen any other, any of those ways. I mean, I could get a, I could be noodling on guitar and come up with a little riff and go, Hey, that's pretty cool. Mm -hmm. uh, maybe I'll file that one away or make a little voice memo. It's great to have those voice memos on your phone or a recording thing. And you can just start, you know, quickly keep track of all these little recordings and things you do. So that's mm -hmm. always good to do. Um, a lot of times, I'll write from concepts, uh, like a concept. For instance, I wrote a song, the title track of my last album, The Ice Queen. Well, The Ice Queen was a concept. It's, I thought of the name, The Ice Queen, and I think of all these things that bounce off of that and why it's important to me and what it relates to and who is this person and what's the story. And so I can go with stuff like that and it really kind of opens up a lot of conceptual stuff. And I. I think that in general, that's mostly the way I write, but it's not to say I can't just pick up and, and, and start from the music too, but a lot of times I start from the concept. Uh-huh. 
Well, I think that that's uh, that's interesting. You know, uh, to think of I there was one composer that um, I talked to last year, jazz composer, and she told me that that what inspired her were particular like catchphrases or quotes. Now she wrote instrumental music, but she would hear, you know, in her head a melody that would maybe go with with that and that's that's what she would use as a starting point and i think having like you talk about that concept of uh you know musically what would what would describe this particular uh concept i think is an excellent way to to to, uh, to put it i know when i uh when i taught music preach the university a big question i used to always get students asking me particularly when i was teaching classical instrumental music is what does it mean because there's no words. Mm -hmm. And my answer to that would be, I said, well, if you close your eyes and you listen to that music as though it is the soundtrack to a movie, what movie do you see in your head? Mm, that's you interesting. And, yeah. and, and, or when you listen to the music, what kind of day do you think that composer was having? Do, mm. Is what they written sound like maybe they just had a fight with their wife or girlfriend or got rejected or you know, th that sort of thing. And uh, we used to talk about that a lot in terms of how to critically think about what uh, they were listening to and, and maybe find some meaning because it doesn't really matter what it means. It it's only matters to the listener. Right. Well, you know, that's, a, I mean, that's an excellent way to think about it. Though. I never thought about it that way. I mean, it's just like your songs, your songs, you may have had a particular intent when you wrote it, but once it's out there and it's into the listener's mind, that could completely change for that, that listener. And I suppose that's okay, because that's who we're really, we're playing for, I guess. Mm -hmm. um, if you cover an already recorded or performed song, what draws you to a particular song to make you want to perform it? Well, I have to be able to relate to it. Okay. So I don't, you know the lyrics are really important because if you're going to sing the lyrics they have to be true to me somehow or and i also have to feel like i can if it's a cover that i can step inside that role and be whoever that person is or that have that experience so a lot of times it it's got to be experiences i can relate to okay all right yeah. kind of related to that question if you are covering a well-known blues song that has a long-standing history. Do you feel an obligation to perform the song in a similar manner to the artist who originally performed or recorded it? Or do you feel an obligation to make it your own by doing it in a unique and new way? Or is there well, some middle ground in there? I think there is middle ground. I think you can do both or either either. Um, you could reinvent it you know musically or you could pay tribute to it and it's you know in the way it was written and try to find yourself within it you do have to find yourself in there though you can't just otherwise it's going to fall flat so i don't necessarily think you have to deconstruct it and pull it you know and build it back up again some new way musically but i do think you have to find a way to express it where it's coming out of you and not you interpreting what they said. I hope that makes sense. Yeah. Yes, it does. I, I often tell the, the other people in my bands that I front, I said, we are not a cover band. 
and I don't care if we are playing a particular tune that is, I said, well, that doesn't mean we have to play it just like so-and-so played it. And, uh, and I, I think that's great, your way of expressing it, because you do, I think, have to make it your own. There may be some exceptions. Now, I was interviewing John Namath last year, and I asked him that question. And he told me of his experience. He was, I think he was touring with, with, uh, with uh, Anson Funderburg. Mm -hmm. And he called, they were playing a festival in Indianola, Mississippi. And he wanted to open with Sweet Little 16. And John told me, he said, I scared him because he knew where he was and he knew if he didn't do it like B.B. King did it, the crowd might not you know, react well. Of course, he said, he also said, but I'm not B.B. King. And so I just went out there and I did, did the best to, uh, I could, you know, to deliver the song. But he, uh, uh, anyway, I guess that's kind of one of those uh, squishy subjects that we could uh, talk about because I don't want to just sound like a live jukebox. Yeah, you know, and I don't think you do either, because we're artists and, and creative people. Um, well, what would you say was your most memorable gig? I don't probably the last gig I did because I don't <laughs> remember. I don't actually remember gigs that well. Okay. But we had a great run recently with Cheap Trick and ZZ Top. That was pretty memorable. Oh, yeah. And that will, that will stay with me. We just played a bunch of arenas in Canada with those two bands, and that was fantastic. Oh, um, yeah. That will stay with me for sure. Yeah. Um, but, yeah, I, I, it's funny because when you do so many gigs, you, I've never been good at remembering all the details from them. Sure. There's so much going on. There's so much going on when you're on tour. It's just like a blur sometimes going from yeah. one place to the next. Yeah, I understand. It'd be sort of like mm -hmm. if I asked you what you had for lunch on Thursday last week. It's kind of like that. Yeah. yeah. Like, what was yeah. Thursday? Where was I? Where was I? Yeah. Okay. All right. Well, then here's another question. And I, I'm not going to let you squirm out of this one. If okay. you could perform with any artist you have never performed with, living or dead, who would that artist be and why? Probably Memphis Minnie, just because I'm, she's my favorite of all time. And, mm -hmm. and uh, I'm, I was fascinated by her and her story and mm -hmm. um, her style. She's just very influential to me. Mm -hmm. And I would have, and there's no video of Minnie, you know, like there's no, interviews or video of her she's very enigmatic and mm -hmm. um sort of died in obscurity even though she was so influential but um i just i think that would probably be the one just because i'd be fascinated just to see what what she was actually like yeah yeah okay yeah there's a another blues artist that i've interviewed she's up in boston i can't uh, her name is escaping me but she was a big memphis mini fan uh -huh. Oh heck! I can't think. Yeah, of her Minnie's name. Minnie's very influential. Well, and actually, her new this other artist, her newest album was had a lot of Memphis Minnie songs on it. But anyway, I'm having a, a senior moment, I guess. Well, now that Pinky's Blues is out, are you working on your your next recording? Yes, um, 
I'm working on a couple of things. One of one would be based around the women in guitar project. Um, so I've I've been incorporating part of that into my live show, sort of a solo set of songs by people from Maybell Carter to Lydia Mendoza to Memphis Minnie and Sister Rosetta Tharp and Elizabeth Cotton and people like that. So I've I've been doing that already. So that's kind of one of my next projects I'm planning. Okay. And then I'm working and then I'm working on a a collaborative project I can't say much about because we're still putting the collaboration together and my own album, uh band album. Okay. So, so yeah. it sounds it sounds like you're juggling a lot of balls in the air there. I am. And keeping a lot of things going. Well, we'll look forward uh to uh what else uh, you come out with. Uh so I think uh, you know we'll be very excited to know and your book and and uh, and all of that uh, great stuff. But Sue, is there anything else you would like to add or tell my audience that I haven't asked you about? Not necessarily. It was a really fun interview. I I think we had a great talk. Well, yeah. very good. Well, very good. Well, Sue, thank you for taking time to uh, talk with me today and. Uh, I certainly want to wish you the best uh, with what I'm sure will be a continued successful musical future. Well, thank you. And maybe we'll see you in Waukesha. Yes. Yeah. All right. Okay. Okay. My discovery composer of the week is Erlen Wallen, a multi-award winning Belize-born British composer and performer. Her prolific output includes 22 operas and a large catalog of orchestral, chamber, and vocal works, which are performed and broadcast throughout the world. She was the first black woman to have a work featured in the BBC proms. Erilyn composed for the opening ceremony of the Paralympic Games 2012 for the Queen's Golden and Diamond Jubilees, a specially commissioned song for the Climate Change Conference, COP26, 2021, and a reimagining of Jerusalem for BBC's Last Night of the Proms in 2020. BBC Radio 3 featured her music across the first week of 2022 for its flagship program, Composer of the Week, and she has made several radio documentaries, including Classical Commonwealth, nominated for the Pre-Europa, which explored the impact of colonialism on music in the Commonwealth. Erilyn Wallen founded her own group, Ensemble X, whose motto is we don't break down barriers in music. We don't see any. Their orchestral album, Photography, on the NMC label, was voted a top 10 classical album by the United States' National Public Radio. Orchestra X performed Erilyn's composition, Mighty River, which was featured in PRSF's New Music Biennial 2017, and which is being performed at this year's PRSF Biennial by National Youth Orchestra of Great Britain at Coventry Cathedral and the South Bank, London. 
Erilyn Wallen collaborated with artist Sonia Boyce on her installation, Feeling Her Way, for the British Pavilion at this year's Venice Biennale, which won the Golden Lion Prize for Best National Participation. Erilyn's albums have traveled 7.84 million kilometers in space completing 186 orbits around the Earth on NASA's STS-115 mission. Her critically acclaimed opera, Dido's Ghost, premiered at the Barbican, London, in June 2021 and will receive its U.S. premiere in 2023 in San Francisco by co-commissioners Philharmonia Baroque Orchestra and Chorale. Recent and forthcoming premieres include a piano concerto composed for pianist Rebecca Ormodia, The World's Weather, an orchestral work premiered by the BBC Scottish Symphony Orchestra, conducted by Martin Robbins, and new choral work for King's College Choir, Cambridge, Westminster Abbey, Salisbury Cathedral, and Harrow School. The April premiere and tour of her latest opera for Grey Theatre Company, The Paradise Files, coincided with the premiere of Quamino's Map for Chicago Opera Theater. Erlen was awarded a member of the Most Excellent Order of the British Empire in 2007, in the Queen's Birthday Honors, and a CBE in 2020 in the New Year Honors for services to music. Erlen lives and composes in a Scottish lighthouse. The All Music Guide lists 25 recordings of Erilyn Wallen's music. In my show notes is a link to a performance of Wallen's Mighty River, performed by Orchestra X, conducted by Andrew Morley. That wraps episode number 86. My show notes, along with links to artist websites, recording label websites, YouTube videos of artist performances are all posted on my Facebook page, The Musical Universe of Professor Hurst. Coming up next week will be my interview with Nashville-based singer-songwriter Stacy Antonell. Other upcoming interviews include New York City-based jazz flautist, composer, arranger, and band leader Jamie Baum, upstate New York-based folk rock singer-songwriter Seth Warden with the band Warden and Company, New York City-based jazz pianist and composer Mickey Yamanaka, and Los Angeles-based jazz drummer and composer Daniel Schnell. So don't touch that dial and stay tuned. If you have any questions, comments, or a suggestion of an artist, composer, or musical style for me to consider, you may email me at h-u-r-s-t-c at u-w-m dot e-d-u. So until next time, 
This is Professor Craig W. Hurst and Carmo the Wonder Dog signing off from the musical universe of Professor Hurst. Have a great day.